Good morning. On a week-by-week basis, we're in the beginning of the service. We're looking at um, God's commitments. God sees you. God sympathizes with you. God deals gently with you. God loves you. God changes you. God chooses you. Goods ahead of you. Goods guaranteed. God gives you the ability to persevere. God gives us the power to be content. Um, Jay Murphy is going to be doing a testimony. That's one thing we'll be doing. He's going to be doing virtually, so we always cross our fingers with respect to technology. But he's going to talk about um, what good is guaranteed to you means and what it means to him. All right. Hey, good morning, Hope Church from the sunny hills of Rapid City. It's, uh, it is warm out here. It's going to be a gorgeous day, but uh, I think we would trade for a little bit of your rain. Uh, it is... It's pretty dry out here. Okay. And uh, yeah, you know, one of the greatest blessings for Lisa and I has been through this pandemic, maybe one of the only blessings has been that we've been able to reconnect with all our forever family at Hope Church via Zoom. Been a wonderful blessing to us. And uh, we hope that we can see you face to face sometime soon. So with that, Mike asked a comment on good is guaranteed and what it means to me. So, you know, one of the things I really love, have always loved about Hope Church is that everybody comes here from someplace else. And, and as a result, we all got baggage. We, we got lots of baggage. Okay. Now, I'm not here to talk about mine, but rather to emphasize just one very, very important point. And that is this. Until I was 30 years old, I had never heard of grace. Never. You know, grace with a capital G, the the undeserved gift of grace was nowhere to be found on the spiritual landscape of my upbringing, nor was the idea, the concept, or the truth of a salvation that is 100% guaranteed. I'd never heard that before. The question was always, what's it take to uh, sway the scale in one's eternal favor? The answer? Just a little bit more, always just a little bit more, no matter what. So, you know, it seems that wherever salvation is talked about or preached, but is not guaranteed, those are the places where you're going to find misery. And that that was the case a lot of the times in my upbringing, right? Now, Mike has made it clear, abundantly clear over the years, that we don't get our best life now, okay? Where the, the struggle is real, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get our best life then, all right? And, uh, you know, 100 years from now, we're all going to be just fine, and then some. But there is something very powerful to be said for the greatest comfort and assurance that we can claim, in my opinion, this side of heaven, okay? I'm amazed at all of us who know because we've heard, but we, we still don't grab and hang on to it, uh, in our great time of need, it's, it's ours free for the taking. And all we need to do is wrap our mind around the concept that Christ's work on the cross is a finished work. It is finished, okay? Which means good is guaranteed to us. And absolutely nothing in the universe can snatch us out of the hand of our loving Father. Good is guaranteed to us because we're connected to good. You know the verse, never will he leave us, never will he forsake us, okay? 
And that verse about God choosing to remember our sins no more. Yeah, that's real. Yep. But here's the mind blower, right? That promise comes to us from a supernatural being that is outside of time. Okay. Which means he's choosing to remember all of our sins, everything we've ever done and everything we'll ever do. All of it is covered for all time, for eternity. Okay. This is where I find the greatest benefit of being a Christian in this fallen world. Okay. This is where I find rest. This is where I find what Paul talks about, the peace that surpasses all understanding. Okay. I'm learning. It doesn't happen overnight, but I'm learning to lean hard into God's promises. And that is where I find my true rest and peace. There is no peace in religion. Because as you know, religion has to do with man's attempt to please God, okay? Peace can only be found in that trusting relationship, okay? Now, here's where you've really got to reconsider and uh, think about your vision of God the Father, okay? You need to see God for who he truly is, not the prosecutor, not an old man with a jagged finger who is pointing at you as he's playing the highlight reel. Nope. You need to see him as the perfect, loving, caring father that he is. A father that's crazy about you and will love you more than you can ever fathom. I'm, I'm learning to trust God. Again, it doesn't happen overnight. It happens over weeks, months, years but I'm learning to trust and lean hard into his promises. And he has never let me down ever, nor will he ever. All right. Now doesn't mean I always get what I want, you know, but, uh, but I know that I can rest easy no matter what may come that he's got me and I'm okay. Like I say, this concept never came to me in my youth and I wish it had Uh, back long time ago when I was 13 years old, I was a very lonely, awkward work in progress. Up until a year prior to my adolescence, I guess you could say, I was raised by my mom, who was a widow and a single working parent who, yeah, she wasn't around much. But now there was a stepdad in the picture who liked to drink and didn't care for me much at all. To say we didn't like each other would probably be a massive understatement. I was young for my class, and I was a late bloomer, which essentially meant I was a boy uh, surrounded by some very dangerous young man boys, if you will, at a very awkward age. I didn't fit in. I couldn't compete. My grades were terrible. My home life was awful. In short, I was just plain miserable. And one day, I, had a, a, I noticed a classmate of mine, a friend of mine by the name of Todd Williams, he was wearing a, a really cool T-shirt from a band that I'd never heard of before. He said his cousin, Rich Williams, was in this band called Kansas, okay, and had sent him the shirt. So I went down to Musicland in the Huron Mall, which is right next to an original recipe, Godfather's Pizza, all three of which are gone these days like dust in the wind. But, but that is not the song that I heard. No, that, that one would come out later, okay? The song that changed my life, you know the one, it's the other one. 
And I think Mark Lortzen has preached on this before, so, so bear with the amateur here. Carry on wayward son, okay? I, I, I think I bought the 8-track and a slice of Godfather's original combo. Oh, my. Oh, just the best. And went back home to my room in the damp, dimly lit basement of the house I grew up in. Now, you know, now some songs are great because of the music. But uh, quite frankly, and Kansas is good, but it's a, it's a bit of an acquired taste, okay? It's, uh, uh, there's a lot going on there. You know, what makes Carry On Wayward Son so great are the lyrics. And if you're over 40, you know them. Okay. <laughs> let's, uh, let's go ahead and recite them all together, shall we? Carry on my wayward son. There'll be what? Peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry no more. The first time that I heard those words, I remember feeling like they were spoken directly to me. Like God was speaking to me. Yeah. The last verse, just as powerful as the beginning of the song. Now your life's no longer empty. Surely heaven waits for you. A yeah. little bit of encouragement that made all the difference in the world 43 years ago. To a kid that, you know, even though I didn't have a dad around to show me the, the way that somehow I knew from that moment on that I had a heavenly father that had my back. Now, years later, uh, when I actually took time to read the Bible, uh, I came across God's promises in Scripture, uh, which to me were very similar, but much more powerful than any lyrics from a Kansas song. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. I will forgive your wickedness and remember your sins no more. I will forgive her wickedness and remember her sins no more. He's forgiving my wickedness and remembering my, my sins no more. Hebrews 8.12, any way you spin it, good is ahead of you. Good is guaranteed to you and me. These are powerful promises that we can use right now. We should use for strength and comfort in our time of need. Rest assured, the struggle is real, but he's got you. Okay, And a peace that comes to us, not of our own ability or understanding, but from a loving, caring, heavenly Father. Enough strength and peace for us that we may carry on. Thanks, everybody. Again, it's so good to see you and uh, uh, via Zoom, and we hope to be reunited with you in person real soon on a Sunday morning. Thanks. Take care. We're in a series, Lost in Translation, and this week we'll finish discussing the dark side. We'll talk about hell and Satan. Um, in the first century, the dark side of eternity... Okay, here we go. Thanks, John. Here's what the first, the dark side of eternity looked like. There was Hades and... Hell. And again, this was what they believed in the first century. Um, Hades was a temp the place temporarily received the souls of the ungodly during the period between death and resurrection. So what they believed is that when your spirit left your body, then the spirit went to this place called Hades. It's an intermediate place where the ungodly were punished. And there was another place that 
they, they had different kind of senses for what it was. There was a paradise, some believe, that was separated. It was in a different place. And for some, Hades was a place that both the godly and ungodly, the ungodly received one kind of treatment and the godly received another. Um, that's Hades. Hell, though, is different. It's a place that eternally receives both the souls and the body after the resurrection at the last judgment. And it's a permanent place. Um, somebody... I, in fact, I looked and somebody else uh, had looked up as well. There was a Wikipedia site that indicated that hell is found 167 times in the Bible. And it then, but I, that's not true. And, I, and, it, and what we'll end up talking about, why is there so much ink given to hell and Satan when the Bible talks about them, but not as much as we would imagine. In fact, the word for hell is found just 12 times in the Bible, and the word for Hades is just found 10. And the idea that's 167 is just not, it's just not true. Pharisees, they were the Jewish scholars who existed. They're the ones that Jesus had a lot of problem with. They believed in Hades and hell. In fact, one school of Pharisees, they believed in kind of a purgatory type of existence. When I was growing up, I was taught about purgatory. Some of us understand that. It's kind of the place where I imagined, in my mind, it was if you weren't good enough to go right to heaven and you were not so bad that you were shipped off to the other place. So you go to purgatory, and the way I saw it is just like you get, it's like being in a chain gang. So you're breaking rocks, and you know you're breaking rocks for so many years, and then you, you get past that, then you end up being able to, um, to go to heaven. Uh, that actually came from um, Pharisees. They believed that prior to the church that I grew up in believing it. Um, doesn't seem, though, biblically, the Bible doesn't support that type of purgatory existence where you work off bad things before you can enter heaven. Uh, we looked at hell a couple weeks ago. I'm just going to review some of the things we talked about. Um, with respect to hell, Jesus confronts Jews with hell, not Gentiles. And there are things that Jesus then directed Paul to say to non-Jews, Gentiles like us, and apparently hell wasn't one of them because there were a lot of instances where Paul could have pulled the, truck, the hell card if he had wanted to, but he never did. Paul doesn't mention hell once in his letters, and he speaks of everlasting destruction once. Again, this is, I'm going to tell you what I think, and it can be supported biblically. Now, we might not all believe the same thing, and that's okay. Uh, so when I put this, this is the way I believe it. I believe hell depicts eternal annihilation, not eternal torment. We looked at some images last time about this place called Edom, which was in Isaiah talked about it's going to be, the smoke is going to rise forever, and it's blazing pitch. And what we saw, we looked at an image. And where this country is from, and there was no smoke, no blazing pitch, no smoke rising. In fact, there was a camera view, and if there had been smoke, you wouldn't have been able to see it. Does that mean the Bible is wrong? No. If you looked at the image, it was desolate. There's nothing there. And that's the image for the smoke rising forever. It removes, it extinguishes life. It annihilates life. I think you can make a, I think you can be biblical and, and believe that hell is not 
somebody frying forever, but it's, it's life that is gone, annihilated. Uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth evidences emotional pain, not physical pain. And we looked at a verse where it described people uh, assuming that they're going to be able to enter, and they don't get to enter, and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. They weren't weeping and gnashing of teeth because they were frying in a frying pan. They're weeping and gnashing of teeth because they arrived at the place that they expected to be able to enter, and they couldn't. That's what it talks about. Um, there's a verse that talks about uh, death in Hades. This is from Revelation, thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anybody's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is an image for hell. And it's interesting then that individuals who don't believe are put into this place, and so is death in Hades. Death in Hades aren't people. They're concepts. So it doesn't make sense then that if hell is a place of physical punishment, then you don't throw death and Hades there because death and Hades aren't physical. So what it seems to suggest then, it's a place where death and Hades cease to exist. They are gone. And, and again, uh, we might have different views, but this is a way you can be biblical and believe this. Um, Hades ends up being thrown into hell because Hades is a place of temporary punishment. And once hell, which is a place of eternal reckoning, then Hades ceases to exist. Talked about hell. We also talked about Satan. The word Satan means adversary or accuser. And the devil means divider. Just going to briefly scan what we looked at last week with respect to three things we learned about Satan. Uh, number one, and by the way, uh, on an ongoing basis now, we're going to convert these PowerPoint slides to PDF files and we're going to include them in the weekly mailing. So if you wanted that, we will include that in the weekly mailing as a PDF file, and so you'll be able to review them if you're saying, oh, I want to get this down, or I don't want to get this down, <laughs> either way. Um, if you do not get the weekly mailing, we send out a, a, a weekly email. If you don't get that, um, as Randy talked about info at sfhopechurch.com or call the church office and let them know that you'd like to be able to get that. Um, anyways, what we looked at, God created Satan. Uh, it says he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. By him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. So God is eternal and all-knowing, and Satan is a created being. That means he's not all-powerful. He can't be everywhere at once. He doesn't know everything. He's not God. Angels are very different from God, who is a all-controlling, all-powerful, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent divine being. Uh, we looked at the fact that God controls Satan's influence. Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. So Satan asked permission to be able to go after Simon, who is Peter. And he was given permission, but the, the sense then is Satan is on a leash. That he can only do what God allows him to do. This is not really a war. We talked about that last week. If you are representing another country and I ask permission if I can shoot a bullet, 
you know, if you're not too busy, could I launch a grenade, maybe? You know, that's not really a war, if I have to ask permission. And so that's where we find that God controls Satan's influence. Um, God also crucified Satan's influence. It says, since the children have flesh and blood, he, Jesus too, shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. That's really an interesting image. The devil holds the power of death. And Jesus came to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. And when it talks about the fear of death, it's not just talking about the fear of dying. You know, all of us, if you think of, we've all, we've all been somewhat concerned about COVID. You know, we've wondered, what if I get it? And what if I have to go in and go on a ventilator? And what if I get to a place where my ability, I can't breathe? And, and what if, and so we I think, and that's a natural thing. We, we don't look forward to death, but the fear of death it's talking about here is not just the fear of dying. It's the fear of what happens after we die. When we appear before him. And what's going to happen then? Um, that's the image. And it's that fear of death that is enslaving. We'll talk about that a little bit. How does Satan cause the fear of death, which is not just the fear of dying. Again, I want to be very clear. I sat with somebody um, who was moving towards, um, in fact, they were, they were pretty close to dying. And the individual was afraid. And because the individual was afraid, they were concerned that their faith wasn't good, that their faith wasn't strong. If I'm afraid when I'm dying, then... And what I was able to do was able to tell them that the fear of dying is natural. We're able to recite Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, he shall not want. And little by little, this person just began to relax a little bit. And I was able to tell them, you know what? Dying is like moving. I mean, who in the world? Every, we all want to move in. You know, if you moved out of one house and into another, it's, it's moving in, it's, that's better. Moving out, that's not very fun. And that's what dying is like. Dying is like moving out of this body and separating from it. That's not something we look forward to. We do look forward to moving into a heavenly dwelling. There won't be any sickness. We won't have to wear masks. There won't be any sickness. There won't be any aging. There won't be any conflict, as Randy talked about, a hundred years from now. With faith in Christ, we're going to be fine. Um, how does Satan cause a fear of death? You know, the, not just dying, but what happens after we die. Um, it gives us some images. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. I think we can make a, an argument that Satan uses old covenant law to cause the fear of death. If I hold it over your head, it says, keep holy the Lord's day. How are you doing? You sure? Been going to church enough? Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. You know, we might do 
don't commit adultery. We might do, some of us are saying, I'm good, I'm good so far. Don't covet. <laughs> How many of you haven't coveted? Coveting is wanting something you don't have. Wanting somebody somebody else has. There's not a one of us. I don't care what you've done other than that. We all get tagged by don't covet. And what, what happens when you hold that over your head, if, if you're coveting, then you're disconnected from God. Satan seems to use old covenant law to create a sense of, oh man, I'm really in trouble. The Bible talks about put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. You know what the devil does? And in this way, he functions in a way that I think he's supposed to. The fact is, because Jesus came, we're not under an old covenant. We're under a new one. When you are pulled into old covenant thinking, God's going to get me. He's going to get back at me. That's where Satan would pull us back under the old covenant. And when you're here, what do you do? Say, get away from me, Satan? No, you don't say, get away from me, Satan. What you do is you look at the cross. What happened at the cross? Jesus inaugurated a new covenant that replaces the old covenant. So that's what he would have us do. It's more important to look at the truth than it is not to look at the error. Don't back away from this. Look towards the fact, well, what, is, what difference does a cross make? There's a difference. What's the cross, the difference a cross makes even when you do something sinful, break a commandment, God's still in you. God is still with you. Good is still ahead of you, guaranteed. That's what the new covenant indicates. And that's what we're to do. We're, we're to focus not on the dark side. Focus here. It says in the Bible, perfect love drives out fear. Look at this verse at the end. Just a couple minutes. Perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears has not been made perfect in love. To the degree we are afraid we have an underdeveloped sense of the love of God. An underdeveloped sense. In order for us to be who God wants us to be, say this prayer to him. Regularly. In fact, you can say it one of two ways. I say a prayer just about every morning, and I, and I mean it every day. Every time I do it, reveal yourself to me. Because I can't, if you don't let me know you, I can't know you. What God wants to reveal to you about himself, which you listen to me, is his love for you. And to the degree that that becomes deeply rooted, you're going to find that love drives out fear. It's like a teeter-totter. Perfect love drives out fear. If your fear is high, what do you do? Try to push your fear down? No, you can't push fear down. Don't do that. Don't do that. You know what you can do? Focus on perfect love because perfect love drives out fear. So as you become more aware of love, love overrides fear. Uh, why is there so much ink given to the dark side? And why do people say there's 167 occurrences? Why even say that? Why is there so much kind of focus on 
the dark side. Actually, there's a rise in the dark side of the Bible. I'm going to talk about this briefly. It's, it's a little bit historical, so some of you might want to go to sleep for just a minute. Um, these are verses from the Bible. They describe the same event. It's when David numbers the fighting men. And again, we can understand why that wouldn't be very popular, because when David numbers the fighting men, somebody's going to get taxed. How many of us love taxes? Yeah, so that's why he's going to get... This is a controversial thing at any rate. It describes David being enticed to do this. Now, once you look at the verse, I'm going to read both of them. Now, you tell me, what's the problem here? Look at the first one. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Okay, pretty clear. Second Samuel 24, it was God who incited David. Now look at the second verse. It says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. How do we reconcile this? Again, they're both biblical. You know what happened here? Represents the rise of the dark side in early Judaism. Now, I'm going to throw some words at you. Now, not only am I going to talk about history, now I'm going to talk about theology. So some of you might want to get the pillow. You know, I'll be brief. But it's one of these things that might be helpful to know. Um, in the early Judaism, they were... Their beliefs were characterized by monism and theism. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to define those. But here's what you need to know. Okay, early in Judaism, it was monism and theism. And then later on in the Judaism, right before Jesus came back, it went from monism and theism to dualism and deism. Okay, what, do you, what does that mean? Let's look at that. Here's the definitions. Monism. Belief that only one supreme being exists. And theism means that this supreme being intervenes in the universe. So that's monism and theism. There's one God, he's pushing the button, he's pulling the strings. That's monism and theism. Now dualism is belief that the universe... Had the universe contains opposed powers of good and evil. Maybe not exactly equal, but kind of quasi-balanced. You know, there's kind of a threat. And deism is that there's a supreme being who doesn't intervene in the universe. So here's what this would mean. God kind of gets the world spinning and then backs off. There's powers of good and powers of evil, but he doesn't intervene. He kind of stands back, and when you hear people, they'll talk about because God's a gentleman. He will never force himself on anything, and that's what dualism and deism kind of... So what ended up happening is early in Judaism... They believe that there's one God, and he's pushing the buttons, and he's pulling the strings. Then, later on... Just right before Jesus, they changed. There's opposed powers, and God kind of stands back. How did this happen? Um, by the way, the increased role of hell and Satan, when it went from monism to dualism, 
Satan started to get all kinds of ink. Really focused on Satan and the devil and hell. Writing about it. Now there are books in called the apocryphal books that are in some Bibles. They're not in ours because they weren't included in Jewish Bibles. The apocryphal books in there in my discipline, I grew up in Roman Catholic Church, there are first, second, third, and fourth Maccabees. There are books that weren't included in the Hebrew Bible, and these apocryphal books written between, right before Jesus came, all kinds of ink on hell and evil and Satan and stuff like that. And you know where this happened? You know where this happened? It happened when the Jews went into captivity into Persia, and Persian religion was dualistic. It was pagan. So the Israelites entered into the captivity, monistic and theistic, and when they came out on the other side, dualistic and deistic. And that's where Satan started to become the focus. And you know what ended up happening? What did the church copy? Early Israelism, early Judaism, or late? The church has kind of copied late Judaism. Well, isn't that, is it, are we saying that the Bible is wrong? When there is confusion in the Bible, here's what you do. Dial in the New Testament, and does Jesus have anything to say about it? Is there anything clear? And here we do. Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to shift you as wheat. I have a question for you. Satan is asked to shift you as wheat. Does that represent dualism and deism? Or does that represent monism and theism? What? Monism and theism. God's the one who's pushing the buttons and pulling the strings. And that's where Jesus tells us that's what it's like. God doesn't have to roll up his sleeves and contend with evil. He's God. Nothing challenges him. And what's happened over the years, we've become so preoccupied with the dark side that we're not looking at the light side. And there's no power in looking at the dark side. What difference does this make? Really? Okay, now we're past the theology and past the history. And What difference does this make? Here's what it says. There's no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. I want you to imagine, as you think about God, you're really aware of his punishment. You've done things wrong. And you're wondering what's going to happen to you when you die. What do you do about that? What do you do about that? Try to be better? That's okay, but you've already done bad things. You know what it says? Perfect love drives out fear. I got a prayer for you. Once you want to know something about from God that's really going to help, and you can ask him this. God, I would ask that you would help me to know your love for me. Could you pray that to him? You know why? Because perfect love drives out fear. And that's what we need. We need to be 
clear about the love of God because that's how the fear of God is overcome. Satan uses law to create the fear of judgment. Fear decreases love. You can't use fear to catalyze love. You better love or I'm going to punish you. That's not going to work. Not going to work. Doesn't work. We love because he first loved us. Love begets love. God uses love to drive out the fear of judgment. Fear decreases love, but love decreases fear. And that's where God would have us focus. We love because he first loved us. Stand for closing prayer. Father, the dark side exists, and yet I, you would not, apparently, you would have us focus not on the dark side because that's not as powerful as the bright side, the light side, your love. That's, that's what's more real. Anyway, there are challenges. There are things, but you would have us focus on your perfect love. I guess I would ask them, would you help us to be clearer about your perfect love for us? Apparently, that's what we most need. Would you help us to know your love for us little by little, more by more as we remain, so that that perfect love, our awareness of it, can drive out fear? In Jesus' name, amen.